If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you criticise somebody for overambition and they fail every time, it's a fair point. I think if you criticise somebody for overambition where actually a lot of it's worked, then that's more problematic. That was Caroline Burt on King Edward I. One great thing in in, um, in Africa, which I, I talk about, were these this mythical mountain range called the Mountains of Kong. And that was Simon Garfield discussing the history of maps. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. We've also recently launched a Kindle Fire edition, and that's available on the Kindle newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this, plus great subscription offers, at our website, historyextra.com. And if you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at History Extra, or Facebook forward slash History Extra. England's King Edward I has long been a controversial figure, particularly due to his treatment of Scotland and Wales. K 
Caroline Burt of Pembroke College, Cambridge, sets out to reassess his reputation in her new book. And our books editor, Matt Elton, spoke to her recently about her discoveries. What would you say is the current prevailing view of Edward I? I'd say it was quite mixed. Um, It started off many years ago being much more positive than it is now. Um, And then criticisms started to emerge among historians in the 20th century. But in the late 20th century, early 21st century, people started to think about some of the positives um, about Edward. So the way he handled the start of his reign and the legacy of Henry III, for example, the way he handled his nobility. So it's currently a bit mixed. Okay. So in your opinion, what were the key things about being king for Edward? I think he thought kingship meant something very distinct. And for him, at the core, was maintaining the dignity of the office that he held. Um, That was something he was absolutely committed to. And that, in practice, really meant that he was to protect the good of his people. Because if he didn't, then that reflected really badly on him and therefore on the office. And he was to protect what um, belong to the office. So, for example, the crown has lands, um, and you don't just let them be given away um, willy-nilly because, of course, that loses you quite a lot of money, and it's not yours to give. You're only a steward of those lands. So, for him, it is this dignity of the office that that comprises these two really key elements. Okay, and that's the central kind of theme that he saw as being a king, if that makes sense. That underpins everything everything that he does. So, of course, if you're thinking about protecting the good of your people and your realm, then naturally that translates into stopping them being attacked on the highway um, and stopping the realm being invaded, just for example. Okay. Um, what were the biggest challenges that he faced in terms of upholding those principles? Um Like any king, he faced disorder. Uh, He faced particular problems with disorder as a legacy of of Henry III's reign because there'd been a really big civil war in the late 1250s and 1260s and Edward only took over about 10 years later. So that means that he inherits quite a difficult situation. Then, of course, like any king, there are outbreaks of of problems in certain areas. And then really badly, um, disorder that arises as a result of war in the 1290s that gets really very serious. Um, aside from that, you've got issues with what he regarded as his sovereignty as king. So from his perspective, the Welsh prince, for example, uh, refusing to pay homage to him for, for Wales, which was just a, uh, a way of questioning Edward's authority that simply couldn't be tolerated and had to be dealt with. So, okay. I mean, those are some examples. Mm, sure. Um, and so challenges to his authority were something that he really came down quite hard on. Mm. Um, do we get an impression from that as what his personality might be like? Yeah, I mean, he's somebody who doesn't brook much opposition. Um, He's not somebody who's terribly easy to advise. So he does have people in the first 20 years of the reign, in particular, who know him very well and have the ability to talk to him about um, things that he's doing in a critical way. Thereafter, when they've died, it's very, very difficult to advise him because he's got very fixed ideas about how things should be done. Um, And he's at times pretty stubborn and easy to, to, to anger, really. Do you think that his personality led to some of the failings that people see of him as having as king? Yeah, I think it it made a definite contribution. I mean, clearly he faces difficult situations on a number of occasions. So the 1290s, um, for example, the French king just confiscates Gascony in the southwest of France. And that's a really difficult uh, situation to face. 
The problem thereafter is that Edward, in the various realms where he has sovereignty, insists on certain things that, particularly in England, for example, absolutely impoverishes people. He insists that they need to pay him tax to fight this defensive war, and they're saying to him, we've got no more money, you've bled us white. And he pushes and pushes and pushes, when actually, of course he's in a tight spot, but politically it wasn't very sensible. Um, and certainly um, some of the bad faith he showed during that crisis was very problematic. So in 1299, I think it is, or late 1290s, he leaves London secretly just to avoid, um, I think it's ratifying a statute. Um, and in 1297, when uh, the council at home has agreed a compromise, um, he's in Flanders and he takes two weeks um, to sign it because he's so angry. And all of these things are things that, that politically are rather um, insensitive. Yes, there's some quite striking accounts of other examples of his kind of violent temper, mm. aren't there? Mm. I mean, certainly there's there's things in the records um, that Michael Presswich discovered, for example, about uh, Edward. I think it was his own crown, but it, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure. But he threw a crown around the room and it had to be repaired. So there's actually a bill in some of the Exchequer records for the repair of this crown that the king wow. had smashed up. And there's another incident where... I think it's one of his daughter's weddings. Um, he beats somebody up so badly he has to pay them compensation. Okay. Um, and in terms of his personality, again, um, some critics have argued that he was overambitious. Do you think that this was the case? I think it depends how you look at it. I mean, I think you could say he had big ideas, um, he tried them out and he failed. So... 1279, he launched this massive inquiry into property and land, um, which was just like Doomsday Book, really. But you've got to remember that this period after Doomsday Book, hundreds of years, things have got a lot more complicated. The population's much, much bigger. This was a massive task, and it was almost bound to fail. On the other hand, you could say, well, if he hadn't had some of his big ideas... Um, we wouldn't have had some of the major successes of the reign. And a good example of that is the Trailbaston Commissions into Disorder in the early 1300s. So it, it's, it's difficult. If you criticise somebody for overambition and they fail every time, it's a fair point. I think if you criticise somebody for overambition where actually a lot of it's worked, then that's more problematic. Okay. Um, you kind of mentioned in your piece that historians haven't really looked in any great detail about how Edward's actions affected his people. Why mm. do you think this is? I think historically, I mean, that, in many ways, that reflects the way history as a discipline has developed. Historically, what historians of all periods were very interested in were institutions of government, things like parliament, for example, and high politics, politics at the centre, what's happening between nobles, for example, and the king. Um, and it's only recently that historians generally have started to look at the everyday lives of people. So I think mid the Middle Ages, the historiography of the Middle Ages is, is in many ways not very atypical. Um, it's just that recently it's benefited from trends that have occurred in, in history generally, or historiography generally. I see. Okay. Um, what were the main challenges that you faced in researching Edward? Um, I think the records are, well, very extensive, more extensive than I think most people realise. Um, I was trying to do something that had never been done before with them for the period that I'm looking at. 
Um, and that really is to quantify disorder, to quantify conflict and crime. Um, and that's very difficult. You have to be very imaginative about how you use the records while not stretching them beyond credibility. So that was a big challenge, thinking about the methodology of using what is a very rich variety of sources, but nonetheless one that has to be used carefully and imaginatively. It doesn't just tell you the answers. Sure. So what kind of sources did you rely on? Mostly legal records. Um, again, most people won't be aware quite how extensive the surviving legal records are for the Middle Ages. So we've got almost continuous runs of records from several courts at the centre and in them that went out to the localities. So we know about lots of disputes that people had with each other, the nature of those disputes, where they took place. Some of them are actually very entertaining. Um, people quite more regularly than you might imagine tell us that they were beaten so badly that they were on the verge of death. Wow. Um, so they're very interesting records um, and very uh, extensive, um, but mostly legal, mostly legal. You mentioned um, that he was successful in tackling crime. Uh, how did he achieve this? Well, you have to be a bit careful when you're thinking about crime because some of it's about perception of the, of the person who's dealing with it and sometimes it looks worse as a result of that. Um, but nonetheless, if you look at the records, you can see evidence of the ways in which Edward was um, not just at times expressing general concern, but more importantly, looking at very, very specific issues in particular counties. Um, and then you see the following year, for example, another commission sent to that county to deal with disorder, and then it stops. And another county is dealt with. Um, now, he's not just going around the counties there systematically. He's dealing with problems as they arise. And you see this um, so frequently that, that often the only conclusion you can derive is that he feels that a solution has been reached in the county once he stops sending commissions, because otherwise, why would he stop sending them? Okay. So you can see evidence of, of the crime being dealt with. Sure. Something that struck me is how different the situation was in different counties around the country. So it mm. seems like there were kind of many different problems to deal with all at once. Um, is it fair to say that there were a lot of different problems happening all around the country at the same time? Yes. I mean, every county is different. Um, so, for example, if you look at Kent in the Middle Ages, one of the things Kent suffers from is very, very um, big divergences between the richest in the county and the poorest in the county. So there's a lot of poverty and you see, therefore, quite a lot of crime in which people are uh, clearly attacking people who are, who are much wealthier than them or who are moving through the county with goods, for example, because, of course, Dover's a major port. Um, if you go to Warwickshire, on the other hand, you're dealing with an entirely different set of problems. There you've got a rapidly growing population, a shortage of land and fights over who gets that land. So it is very different. And as a king, obviously, one, one size doesn't fit all. You've got to respond to the, the, the differing nature of problems that you face. So, I mean, obviously, it's hard to generalise in some cases. But how far do you think his actions change the lives of his subjects? Mm, I think they did make a big difference. I think he dealt better than many kings had before him with threats to people's land, either from uh, other people within the country or threats to, to land being appropriated, for example, by the Welsh prince and his allies. So in that sense, a big difference. 
alongside that in a more kind of major structural way this is the first king really to develop parliament and a system of taxation which brings in not just the nobility but the gentry and asks them for consent to that taxation for a discussion about when they should grant it which wars are acceptable and that of course makes a very big difference to people's lives because in a way it uh, widens the political community um, and widens the scope of debate, which is a, a big move forward. At the same time, he, he passes the most amazing amount of legislation. Um, and that's a big, big change. And that makes a big difference to people, right from um, how rape is dealt with to how other forms of crime are dealt with to how um, your um, disputes are dealt with. All of that is, is something that he makes changes to and, and improvements to. Moving on to the final years of his reign, is it fair to say that these were disappointing? I think it's unfair. I think it's one of the things that the historiography has increasingly done. So, um, you know, that the realm, the reign, sorry, ended in disorder. Um, Edward left uh, his son with, with a couple of hundred thousand pounds worth of debt. The Scots were in rebellion. You could paint a very negative picture. You could also flip that picture around and say, well, Actually, Edward had reached a very good accommodation with Scottish nobility and the Bruce Rebellion of 1306 is in many ways more of a reflection of the fact that Bruce felt he was outside that accommodation for reasons that, that um, are complicated and not really in many ways Edward's fault. Um, so in that sense, did Edward just push the Scots into rebellion? No. Was that a rebellion that from an English perspective could have been tackled? Yes, it possibly could, but the king died. So it's, it's difficult to criticise Edward for dying. Um, Trailbaston and disorder, uh, Trailbaston being the commissions that Edward issued to deal with the disorder that had resulted from the, the big wars of the 1290s, has been assumed to be a failure. But actually, when I looked at it, there was lots of evidence that it had been a major success for him. So, yes, he left the, uh, the realm, uh, the, the, the king, um, who succeeded him in debt and that is a reflection in many ways of Edward's inflexibility, his unwillingness to ask for taxation in the early 1300s because he didn't want to negotiate with his subjects as he had had to do in the late 1290s. He didn't want to make concessions. That's a criticism of, of his inflexibility and in that sense that is a failure. Okay, I mean looking back at his reign as a whole, um, to what extent was he a typical medieval king? Problem is, I don't think there's a typical king. So if you, if you actually take the, the period after Edward, his son was deposed for being a terrible tyrant and was useless from the outset. Edward III, who came along after him, was absolutely brilliant. Then you have Richard II, who was utterly paranoid and also became a tyrant and also got deposed um, by Henry Bolingbroke. Then you've got Henry IV, who seized the throne from Richard II and was okay, but, you know, not a brilliant king. Then Henry V is brilliant, and then Henry VI, who may have been schizophrenic. So there is no typical medieval king. There is, if you like, um, an underpinning sense in political ideas at the time that are they're widely circulating about how a king should behave. But unfortunately, where you have a situation in which kingship um, is... Uh, inherited, then you are taking a gamble on on what your son or son is like, basically. And and a lot of the time, it doesn't work out terribly well. So there is no typical in a way. Okay. So in many ways, you think he's not deserving of his current negative reputation. 
Um, well, I mean, I'd go back to, to what I said earlier. I wouldn't say it's an entirely negative repu reputation. It's, it's mixed at the moment. But I certainly think some of the negative elements, particularly in relation to um, how effectively dealt with disorder and the final years of the reign, need to be revised because um, they are overly negative, um, when in fact we might draw a number of positives from things he did and his achievements. And finally, what do you think the true legacy of his reign is and should be? Well, major things, steps forward in the development of parliament and taxation and legislation. And I think those are things that we should remember are a big legacy of Edward I, a major legacy. Um, developments in the ways in which the state tackled disorder. And there's undoubtedly huge strides forward on that front. Um, and personal to Edward particularly, the commitment, I suppose, for the first time in the 13th century at least, to, if you like, public interests of the whole realm. In other words, an attempt to govern well. And in that sense, he's, he's, he's in some ways an exemplar of good kingship. And that should be his, his legacy. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. That was Caroline Burt talking to Matt Elton. Her book, Edward I and the Governance of England, 1272-1307, will be published by Cambridge University Press later this month. Caroline has also written a fascinating piece on Edward I for our latest issue, which is on sale now. And also in the magazine we've got articles on witch trials, Thomas Beckett, Mussolini, American presidents and jiu-jitsu suffragettes. You can still get hold of that in the shops, as well as on Kindle and iPad. 
Maps have existed in different forms for many centuries, reflecting some of mankind's best and worst attributes, from discovery and curiosity to conflict and destruction. So says Simon Garfield, author of a new book on the subject. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Simon to find out what maps can tell us about culture and society and what he believes is one of the most useful maps in the world, the London Tube map. So, Simon, your last book was about fonts and typefaces. What made you turn your attention to maps? All my books, really, I think have been kind of, you know, fairly diverse in their uh, subject matter. Um, But they've all been about things that I've been passionate about um, at one time or another in my life. And uh, maps has been something that I think that's been there really all my life. Um, And it wasn't my idea. I mean, (laughs) I uh, obviously uh, like to take full credit, but actually uh, my American... Uh, publisher um, just came up with the one word which was just maps um, and I thought for about three seconds and I thought yes I'm going to write a book mm-hmm. about maps I mean I, I've been I think I've been interested since I was a kid going to school um, getting the northern line in London from Hampstead no from Golders Green to Hampstead uh, where I went to school and um, just looking at the tube map every day and thinking, God, you know, places like Hendon sound exotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at uh, the end of the Piccadilly line, thinking, oh, that's a place I'll never get to. So that was sort of, I think, the first, the first sort of inkling that uh, actually maps were interesting and could take you to places that, that, that seemed, as I said, you know, just exotic to me as a, as a, a ten, 10-year-old. And then after that... Um, uh, I think it was, it wasn't through school because I wasn't especially good at geography. I was interested in history, I think, far more. And I'm not obviously geography is a, a, a lot more um, than maps. But I think it was a sort of, it really was the kind of the stories and the politics and the background to maps rather than the um, something that I really appreciated a lot later, which was the, the kind of, I suppose, the beauty um, of maps uh, that excited me originally. So, long-winded answer, but basically, um, I've always been interested in maps. Okay, now how did you go about researching the book? Did you have to visit any specific places? Yeah, I was very keen, really, um, to bring the maps alive. So, I, 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 I ended up, I think, uh, for some reason, with 39 uh, different maps that I look at in the book. Um, and some of them are, are, are quite sort of rare and, and unknown, but some of them are are sort of well-known. So, for instance, the map of Mundi or looking at maps of, maps of Mars. So, I, I was very keen, though, to just not sit in a library. I did go, obviously, spend a lot of time uh, at, at the British Library and the London Library and the New York Public Library and the Royal Geographic Society and all of that, uh, and uh, Geographical Society, I should say, and, and um, you know, just calling th- things up. And obviously, you look at a, a lot of things online. But I was also also um, aware that because of my journalistic background, um, I could go out and talk to people and hopefully uh, bring these sort of 2D images uh, alive in a new way. So, for instance, the map of Mundi, you know, 1290, 1295 or so, and you think, well, you know, what's more to be said about it? But actually, um, I 
I thought the the most interesting place to begin with that was the uh, the, the 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 proposed uh, sale of it, almost disastrous sale of it, um, in the late nineteen. Uh, 80s. So I thought, well, you know, who's around who was involved in that? And actually, um, the Reverend Peter Haynes, who uh, was then Dean of Hereford Cathedral, where the map is and, and was almost sold from, uh, is alive still. He's, um, I think, now 89. So I went up to see him, really, to get his version of events, and he was terrific. And then, well, who better to talk to Maps of Mars than Patrick Moore? So I went to see Patrick Moore, and he wasn't very, very, very well, but my gosh, he had great tales about, about Mars and, and um, most of them about how we, you know, up until the, the, uh, the Mariner um, uh, spacecraft went up there, uh, we didn't really have any idea what it was really like. So he talked very amusingly about what, what we got wrong about Mars and, you know, our, our imaginations that there were canals up there and all of that. Um, and then I went to um, New York to talk to the, the, the greatest and, um, and I write in the book Most Feared uh, and also I think kind of respected um, map dealer in the world, uh, um, a man called W. Graham Raider III. And I, I, I interviewed him between, he came in after a very sweaty squash game and a big sale at an auction house where he was selling and buying all sorts, sorts of things. So I, I, I guess, you know, I, I went all, all, all over. Uh, really, um, and uh, you know, so a, a lot of the of, of the tales are told from research um, that I, uh, I I I got from books, and uh, and then quite a lot as well as talking uh, is is uh, derives from um, uh, fresh interviews. And what would you say that maps can tell us about the culture and the society in which they were made? Uh, gosh, well, everything really. I think is a simple answer. Um, you learn a huge amount about um, science and religion and uh, trade and power at the time. And obviously, you know, it depends on uh, which period and which maps um, you're looking at. But if you take, um, I don't know, if we take uh, the map of Mundi again, that's really a religious artifact as much as anything else. It's, it's a sort of Christian worldview. So you look at that map, you learn a lot about how um, the, 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 the church saw the world and how um, the, the, the people who drew up the map um, felt that, um, you know, pilgrims who went to see it in um, Hereford um, should think about the world, how, how they should live their lives. So uh, Jerusalem is obviously at the centre of that and uh, that sort of, you know, the, the pinnacle, that, that's the, the, ultimate, the ultimate goal and, and fantastic visions of heaven and hell if, uh, if you misbehave as well. And then you look at, um, you know, I, th I think the scientific mapping really began with the ancient uh, Greeks um, and you look at uh, you you learn a huge amount of uh, what they knew uh, of the world and what they thought was important about the world and in 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 other words where they traded and uh, where travelers came into the great library of Alexandria with fantastic reports and these reports obviously went uh, to um, to you know to, to the great librarians at Alexandria including Eratosthenes and then after that Ptolemy um, and their great uh, geographical writings um, tell us a huge amount no maps survive directly from that period but obviously the maps we have are reconstructed very much from their their sort of atlas 
plus indexes, I suppose, um, from the time. And then obviously trade, trade and power. So when one gets to the Renaissance, one looks at the um, the varying and uh, the varying degrees of uh, influence of um, European countries um, and the uh, the strength uh, of their of their navies and uh, navigators and and. Uh, one looks obviously at uh, Portugal and uh, Italy, uh, Germany up to a point, um, uh, and, and then the UK, uh, or England, of course. And, um, and then I think, you know, you can look at power, um, a sense of nationhood, which obviously you get from military maps, um, and, but you also get it from sort of uh, less aggressive uh, map. So you, one looks at the at the Cassini maps uh, when, uh, of, of France in the 18th century, uh, which directly inspired uh, our Ordnance Survey. And that's really about sort of protecting what we have and being able to map out uh, land in terms of uh, ownership and power. And were there any particularly striking or unusual maps that stood out for you during your research? All of them have you know uh, their own their own kind of appeals and and that is either a particular story that they tell uh or a mist you know a mystery they reveal but i think as a group the 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 the, the great pleasure i i got was sort of I, I suppose exploding myths um and and certain maps that had things on them that were wrong uh, are always as interesting as the things mm. that are, are right um and one doesn't want to appear too uh, cynical in this but for instance i mean the one of the maps that, that i love looking at um was 17th or really 18th century um, and 19th century maps of uh, Africa and what we knew um, from, from there. So we thought we knew a huge amount more. You look at maps of Africa um, from, um, from great cartographers like Blau, um, who you know, these maps were made in Amsterdam in the, uh, in the 17th century. And um, they, these are really uh, beautiful things. And it looks like we know everything that there is to know about Africa. They're full, and classically they're full with uh, all sorts of places that don't exist. And, um, you know, when they didn't know what was there, they, they classically put in elephants and other <laughs> uh, animals. Um, and then... Uh, you actually look at the uh, you know the far more scientific maps of the 18th century, and you realise that we didn't really know anything at all. But one great thing in in um, in Africa, which I, I talk about, uh, which, which first appeared in maps at uh, really at the end of the uh, 18th century, um, were these this mythical mountain range called the Mountains of Kong. But um, fantastically gifted and well respected. Um, uh, British um, cartographer called James Rennell, uh, who was who was very influential in mapping um, uh, India. Um, he just put these these sort of huge mountain range um, stretching from the west coast right through the middle of the country called the Mountains of Kong, which didn't exist, but they appeared on maps um, for about a hundred years. I, I, I write in the book that they were sort of the the equivalent of a, um, a Wikipedia entry that that sort of appears. And then, you know, appears incorrectly in, in a, a thousand school essays because no one has actually sort of checked that something is true. And it takes takes a while for this to be corrected. And in, in the case of the Mountains of Kong, it took a hundred years. And then, oh gosh, I don't know, I was trying to think... Um, Another example, oh, well, the classic one, I suppose, um, which again wasn't on maps, but it's a, a great myth, is this idea of uh, the phrase, here be dragons, that um, 
we assume uh, was on all these old medieval dark age maps, you know, places where uh, sailors um, feared to sail and, and they saw terrible sea creatures and uh, they wrote in whatever language it would be, Latin, one, one assumes originally, you know, here be dragons, hicksunt dragones, and uh, delighted to find that this actually didn't appear on any map at all so uh, if listeners can can find a map uh, with here be dragons on it i mean obviously not a modern map or a parody but a, a, an old medieval map with here be dragons on it then they would be making cartographical history and how do you think technological innovations such as apple maps and the internet have shaped our view of the world i mean i, I you know as someone who who loves um uh, old maps, uh, not really through, you know, not not for nostalgic reasons, um, but just because you realise, you know, obviously having written a book, you realise their value, and um, I, I have a sort of love-hate relationship with um, with uh, digital uh, maps, um, but I do wonder about, you know, for instance, my kids are growing up without really. Um, any need to to know how to open um you know a map um and uh to you know to 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 find their way on let's say on a survey or even an old-fashioned a to z um you think actually well um the reason they don't uh, need that is because they you know they've they've just grown up with with three maps on their computers and on their phones um so so I think I think we are losing a huge amount, but we're also gaining a huge amount. So we we, we lose, you know, any idea of, of actually where we are when we look at a sat nav or, or um, uh, you know a handheld uh, device. We can see, you know, if we're lucky, a hundred yards ahead with no idea about what we're passing on either either side and no idea of uh, you know we can go from one end of the country to another without knowing how we really got there um and yet obviously it's 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 also a great tool uh, it's not a great tool if you're if you're up, up the middle of snowdonia and um you know your ba- your batteries uh, run flat uh, or there's no um, gps but in so many other ways i mean it's such a kind of key part of our lives now and i i I put in the book that, you know, if, if we lost GPS, uh, it, it would be like, um, you know, if all the satellites fell from the sky at once, it would be like losing electricity, gas, um, and, uh, and you know, sort of any, any other energy supply mm. all at once, uh, really. I think it would, it would be that um, colossal. Um, but then one has to ask, well, you know, we don't really know how to plough a field now, most of us. Uh, and uh, obviously, um, you know, in agricultural times, uh, the, if, we, if we didn't know how to do that, it would be disastrous. But now we can't read a map. You know, so new generations perhaps have difficulty reading a map. Is, is that a is that a great loss? Not so much for them, really. Um, you know, in conclusion, I think I, th- I have I have both good and bad feelings towards uh, towards digital maps. Okay, and who, in your opinion, has created the most useful map in history? Um, well, again, oh gosh, I mean, spot for choice, and obviously it depends on, on which period we're talking about. I mean, uh, personally, I, I would probably go back to my, my tube, tube maps, really. So, uh, Harry Beck, um, for me, every day in London, or 
almost every day in London. You know, uh, if, if I'm working, I, I would probably use the tube in some way. And even though I've been looking at it for something like 40 years, I still have to consult it. It's not something you learn off by, off by heart. Um, and its influence has obviously been so vast. A lot's been written about the, the tube map, but its influence all over the world and its significance as a, you know, as a, as a geographically uh, incorrect map. Famously, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, the tubes, tube stops aren't obviously, um, you know, the same distance apart. And uh, the middle of London, uh, is obviously far more compressed um, than it looks on 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 the on the map. But as as a um, as a di diagram, it's it's probably one of the most important uh, maps ever ever made. And I I think as well probably the most reproduced map uh, ever made. Um, but then oh, I don't know. You know, from from an aesthetic point of view, I would say the Blau atlases. Um, from the um, from the 17th century, just absolutely gorgeous mm. things. Uh, now, uh, you know, unaffordable, really, unless you're hugely wealthy. But there are the uh, uh, Tashin have really recently brought out a, a wonderful reproduction. I think from the Atlas of, um, from 1665. Uh, that's a hugely useful thing, even now, to understand what people in the 17th century uh, knew of uh, of of the world and how much really they knew of the world um but then you look at the tar you know ptolemy's geographica um also you know 2000 years old or so um fantastically useful and then i think if you're you know if you're honest now the most useful map ever made google maps uh, i think quite hard to argue against it uh everybody, everybody has access to it free um, everyone uses it uh, all over the world, um, and it's it's pretty damn good as well. And do you think our ancestors had the same need that we seem to have to learn about the world through maps? Yeah, I, th I think I think as much. I mean, the 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 um, the thing I was talking about before, uh, you know, this this the use of, of and the emergence of scientific principles um, in ancient Greece um, were significant, but as significant because they disappeared for um, some something like 1400 years um, and only uh, reappeared at the beginning of uh, the Renaissance. I think the, 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 the disappearance tells us a lot about how maps weren't regarded uh, as significant in, in getting about the world. Now we, we regard them as, as tools pretty much, you know, unless we're just enjoying them in a, in a museum or exhibition. Um, we, we regard them as, you know, how, how to get from, you know, A to, a to B, how to plan our holidays, um, you know, how to, how to find out where a city in uh, China is. Um, but then they were, they were far more, um, they, 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 they were far more symbols of power. So, there was, a, I think, there was very much thinking that if you controlled the map, you controlled the, you controlled the world, or you, you certainly controlled an element of, 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 of trade. Um, and uh, it's only been really, I think, um, in the last hundred years or so, or maybe you could argue less, that we would, we all have fairly free access to maps. I mean, they, obviously, it would cost a little bit to buy an Norden survey map on, or an A to Z or an atlas or whatever, but they were, you know, fairly freely um, 
uh, affordable um and uh so so it's it's you know it it uh, it, it obviously, obviously the the significance of maps sort of changes um fundamentally uh over the the centuries um but the, the, we obviously and 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 you know we obviously travel far more than than we ever did uh, as well. So, so the, the significance of maps in, let's say, guidebooks when we're going abroad has obviously been far more important. I mean, I know we had the Grand Tour and everything, but you know, it was only when guidebooks really came into their into their own in, in sort of Victorian times um, that that we we used we use maps sort of every day uh, in the same way that we do do now. And what do you think our medieval forebears would have made of what you refer to in the book as me mapping or maps that place the user at the centre of everything? Well, I think they, um, I gosh, I mean, they, they would have been, I think, both horrified uh, and amused and, and, and um, not really be, be able to sort of, you know, understand the concept at all. I mean, the, the, obviously, the idea of, um, you know, war, war, walking around um, with, with, with maps in our hands that change as we walk is, uh, in, you know, an extraordinary thing. And the idea of, of, of me, me mapping uh, that I write about in the book is, is you know, that it's a very sort of egocentric thing, whereas before, you know, as I said, Jerusalem would be at the centre of the map, or, or perhaps it would be the British Empire or Paris at the the heart of the French Empire. Um, you know, now it's us. Now it's always us. So there's this this, this idea that we are the most important thing on the map, rather. Mm-hmm than being a very insignificant, tiny little dot. Even if you lived in a major city, it would be a very, very small part of the world map. Now you don't really see the world map. Now it's all about us getting to, you know, the train station or uh, the meeting place where, where we're going to meet a friend or whatever it is. But I think they would be astonished that we we don't look up, really. You know, we don't see the world around us perhaps in the same way. And I think uh, that's obviously... Um, a um, you know a, a bad thing and a thing that we've the, the, that we really have lost that maps are very practical in the way that they never were um, but there, there's also a kind of feeling that you know perhaps we don't understand I mean I haven't talked to anyone who teaches um, geography in in schools um, but I I do know that we don't have a globe in every classroom the way we did we don't have world maps um you know on the walls the way we did so i th- i think i think they would be slightly perturbed really that we uh, we although we have uh, as many maps as we need and uh, maps you know freely uh, available at all times um that they would be slightly worried that we 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 don't perhaps understand the uh, the, the 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 beauty and the and and the, and the grandeur of the world that was simon garfield and if you like what you heard you can plot a course to your nearest bookshop and get hold of his latest book on the map which is published by profile well that's about all for this episode do join us next week when we'll be discussing Mussolini's followers and medical history. And in the meantime, do have a look at our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook too. The History Extra podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.